gospel lesson. This is also our sermon text for this Sunday, and it's been taken from John's gospel, uh, starting in chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. Let me just remind you, this is God's word to us. It's given to us because he loves us. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let me uh, pray for us and ask God's blessing upon us as we now look into God's Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would empty us out and to fill us with your Spirit to increase our faith, increase our assurance of your love and your goodness to us. Help us to hear your voice because yours is the voice that we need to hear above all others. All the voices in our own heads and the voices outside us, all around us every day, because yours is the voice of love. So let us hear the voice of our good shepherd now. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to the conclusion of a sermon series that we began this fall that we titled, Why Church? Why Now? That in the time of the great de-churching that we have been experiencing As Christians in this country, that over the last 25 years, some 40 million of our brothers and sisters have stopped going to church, that we decided that we should take this time to take some stock of why so many of them have uh, left our churches and to challenge ourselves as to what we must be and what we must do differently if we are going to meet this current challenge that we find ourselves in. Our neighbors, quite simply, are not listening to us anymore, and they're not looking for us as the church anymore. We've been asking the question, why? Why is that? Now, I would argue it's because 
Too often, we as the church don't look any different than any other tribe or affinity group or ideological or political party. That when the church of Jesus is supposed to be its own countercultural community, it always has been. You know, the early church wasn't persecuted for its faith for the first 300 years of its existence because it fit in nicely with the status quo. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world aren't violently being persecuted today because they fit in nicely with the status quo. And yet, the early church of the first three centuries and the church in places of true persecution today in the world have something in common besides their persecution. Growth. Growth. They grew. They are growing. Whereas the church in the secular West, and what I mean by that is Western Europe and North America, has experienced for the most part, not always and everywhere, but just speaking in generalities, has experienced decline for the last so many decades. So in short, I believe that we as the church in North America have become too comfortably intertwined with the prevailing narratives of safety and security, of affection and esteem, and power and control that dominate our culture. So why do our neighbors need to look to the church for answers if we don't look and say that much different than the world around us, besides who has that kind of money? How do we regain the attention of our neighbors? How do we regain the attention of our neighbors? Well, quite simply, we have to change. We cannot rely on transfer growth anymore. Never should have really in the first place. What do I mean by that? It was easy. It used to be easier. You know, when Park Slope Presbyterian Church was planted in 2004, which is the mothership of all our churches when we were, you know, at the height, it had five different congregations in this network. When Park Slope was planted way back then, Brooklyn was the hippest, coolest, sexiest place in all of America to move to. Everybody and their brother, sister's mother wanted to be in Brooklyn, New York. And people were moving here in droves. And many of them were coming already committed believers in Christ and churched Christians. And so they moved here and they were looking for a place to worship and they found us. And many of you were part of that core group and you've been here through it all thick and thin, but you watched them as they came and as they went and they came and they went. But even if they left, there was always this new wave of transplants moving to Brooklyn and looking for churches to replace them even as they left. But for a variety of reasons, that ship has sailed. That is not the case anymore. And we know these reasons. The rent is too dang high, got to be too expensive to live in Brooklyn, New York. And so that flow of transplants started to slow down greatly. And people started moving out of the city in droves rather than moving in. Now, they weren't, you know, it wasn't like no one was moving back in. There were still folks uh, moving into Brooklyn, New York, and in New York City, but 
This replacement population is some of the most gospel-resistant cultures in all of the world. Our churches were already experiencing decline prior to the pandemic. And then the pandemic happens, and we lose even more of our friends who leave New York City for good. And then many of our other friends got used to not going to church during the shutdown and decided they liked it that way, and they weren't coming back. Now, do I paint a fair picture, or do I exaggerate? Now, I believe that we, as this body of believers in this place in Clinton Hill, are in a better place than we were three or four or even five years ago. I truly believe that. I have zero regrets about the decisions that we made to merge our congregations together. I think we are in a much healthier and stronger place than we used to be. And we are seeing visitors come and check us out. Visitors, thank you for being here. A lot of folks in here don't know you are visitors because we are still getting used to each other as merged churches, and so they don't know if you are part of one of the other congregations that just came over or if you're brand, brand new. So please be patient with us, and thank you for worshiping with us today. But we all know that we have a challenge before us if we want to see this church succeed in reaching our neighbors with the good news of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we are not and cannot rely on transfer growth anymore. We must seek transformational growth. And that transformational growth has to start with us. With the members and the regular attenders and those who consider this faith community to be their church. And so this sermon series that we started this fall, Why Church, Why Now, has meant to set the tone for what Jameis and I think that this church has to be and to become if we are going to attract the attention of our neighbors again. And so we have talked about things, about this place becoming a place of welcome when others are putting up walls, a place of worship and a time of disintegration. A place of witness to joy in a time of despair. A place of embodied incarnation in a culture of ideology. A place of depth in an era of distraction. A place of generosity and a scarcity mindset culture of stinginess. And to close out this sermon series today, a place of compassion in a world of judgment. Listen again to our gospel text to get today, starting in verse 7. As they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Last Sunday, as we were driving home after our morning worship service, we pulled up to a stoplight, and in my rearview mirror, I could see that there was a driver behind me that was going to pull over, and in the very narrow space between the line of cars stopped at the red light and the curb, 
was going to squeeze through that tiny little gap and jump to the front of the line. And I said a very not nice thing about this driver, and I moved my truck over so that he couldn't. And Jesse, sitting next to me, said, what would Jesus say if he rode around in the car with you? And I quickly retorted, I know what he'd say. I get you, brother. One time I made my own whip out of cords and kicked the rear ends of people who were taking advantage of other people. And she just went, hmm, hmm. And there was a moment of silence, and I sat there thinking about it. And I said, you know, next Sunday I have to preach a sermon about judgment. And Georgia in the back seat went, ha, ha, that's going to go well for you. And yes, I have a hard time driving around in the traffic of Brooklyn, New York, and New York City. And in my modern-day scenario, if Jesus was sitting out there in the yard outside the church, I would want to line up every car service driver who thinks they can drive into other lanes of traffic to skip ahead of the line to the front, every e-bike delivery person who flies down the sidewalk and in bike lanes with no regard to traffic laws whatsoever and about just crushes you as they're delivering their Grubhub and DoorDash, every young person who tricks out their car with a muffler that is ridiculously too loud and zips and dives recklessly through traffic, you know, all over the place, I'd want to line them all up in front of Jesus and say, can we throw stones at these people? Because I can throw a rock really good. I am great at throwing rocks. And what would he do? How would Jesus respond? Well, people throughout the ages have speculated What was Jesus writing with his finger in the dirt on the ground in our text today? Many tend to think that he started writing out all the sins of the religious leaders who paraded this adulterous woman in front of Jesus. So I would imagine Jesus would start writing out all my sins in the dirt on the ground out there in the yard, starting with the hateful thing that I said about the driver last week who tried to cut me off in traffic or the other ones I talked about on the way to church this morning. Judgment. We all judge. We all judge. We judge ourselves to some degree, but of course, our favorite pastime is judging others. And as Matthew McConaughey's character in the first season of True Detective, Rustin Cole, said, everybody judges all the time. Now, you got a problem with that. You living wrong. Now, Rustin Cole is correct to a point. Everybody judges all the time. We cannot make choices in our everyday lives. We cannot make decisions that shape and form our identities and who we are. We cannot choose the paths that we will take in life without forming judgments. It's inevitable. It's human. My household judged the judgment of the referees in a certain football game yesterday mercilessly. Jesus is presented with a woman. Now, she is being used as bait by these religious authorities to try to trap Jesus in a moral, theological, ethical game by which they can therefore discredit Jesus' authority and influence as a teacher, as a rabbi. A woman who has clearly broken the moral law. She has committed adultery. Now, Jesus does not condone her sin. His last words to her are, Go, and from now on, sin 
No more. Jesus doesn't say your sin doesn't matter to me. I don't really care. Do whatever it is that you want. Jesus judges. But Jesus does not condemn her. Jesus judges. But he does so with compassion. Jesus shows her compassion, not condemnation. You know, we all know and love John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But how often we forget to move forward to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order through him the world might be saved. Jesus came to save not to condemn. Or in other words, Jesus came to save, not to cancel. Cancel culture. When you think about it, cancel culture, which we've talked about a lot over the last four or five years, cancel culture has always existed. Some means to combat the abusive behavior and exploitation of power, that has been around forever, since the beginning. But of course, in our internet age, canceling has experienced this whole new life. And one New York Times article argues that the speed and the sloppiness and the relative anonymity of social media haven't created a radically new strain of bullying. They just facilitate and exacerbate an old one. And yet some will argue that canceling is not the same thing as bullying, but actually a, quote, necessary corrective to the failure of the state to protect its citizens. Now listen, there is a good and right need for calls to accountability and injustices be addressed. No one's celebrity or position gives anyone a right to act wickedly with impunity. But our current cancel culture has run amok. And as that article also points out, I think rightly so, the powers that be somehow remain in place, unchanged. Canceling is not working. And of greater concern is that canceling is now no longer reserved for challenging the powers that be. It's utilized daily to jump directly to bending down, picking up stones, and condemning anyone with whom we have a beef. And our neighbors, they see this, they experience this, they participate in this meanness and ugliness. And unfortunately, they have seen and experienced and participated in this ugliness and meanness in the church. The church has also had its own cancel culture. I was speaking with someone recently about their struggles to reconcile the faith that they had grown up with and the church culture that they had lived in for most of their life of what they came to see as incongruent with the Jesus of the Gospels that they read about. This person said that all their life they were taught rather explicitly or implicitly that if one had the right rules, the 
right beliefs, the right doctrines, the right worship style, the right music, the right Bible, the right requirements that set them apart from all those people who got it wrong, then they would be in turn right with God. And they said they came to see that having all those things right while others had it wrong wasn't making them right with themselves. Wasn't making them right with anybody else, certainly. But even more importantly, it wasn't giving them any assurances whatsoever that they were right with God. So instead, they made a decision. They made a choice that it was more important, this is what they said, to be loving than to be right. That Jesus called them to choose compassion for others and to renounce the condemnation of others, even if that made them wrong to their religious community. Jesus isn't about cancel culture. The religious leaders ask him to participate in cancel culture, and instead, Jesus cancels cancel culture. Because Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. And if we're going to answer the question, why church, why now? then we as followers of Jesus, as his body, are going to have to wrestle with the same. I've said before that those who are truly following Jesus are the ones who can somehow hold these tensions in themselves the same as Jesus is. That somehow we can both be honest about what is sin, while at the same time extending compassion instead of condemnation. That somehow both can and should and have to be true. And we have to somehow learn how to hold that sin is sin where we see it. But at the same time, hold your spouse with compassion. Hold your children with compassion. Hold your parents with compassion. Hold your classmates and your roommates with compassion. Hold yourself with compassion instead of condemnation. We are called as Jesus' church to hold what we believe, but hold it with the humility that we are not better than anyone else. Because we depend on the sheer good pleasure of God to love us just because He chooses to. Not because of anything that we have done. And if anyone has the right to throw rocks at us, it's, it's, it's God, our righteous judge. He's the only one that has the authority to throw rocks at us. But he comes to take the beating, not the one doling it out. So that we can see and learn the same from him, that it is important, it is more important to be loving than to be right to rush to extend compassion rather than condemnation. So in this series, we have tried to talk about what we believe is important to the culture of this church. If we want to be, if we want to become a counter-cultural witness to life with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. That culture doesn't just happen because you distill it down into a pithy phrase and stick it on your website. It doesn't just happen 
because you put it on a banner and hang it outside on your building. It doesn't just happen because you make it a sermon series and you post it online. And I would like to just note that while we that we have mentioned acquiring this building of obtaining this space as being part of that vision, very little to none at all. It is not dependent on this space. As you see, we can't just say these things. We have to live these things. We have to work them out in relationship together. We have to celebrate together the ways that we are accomplishing these things from the small ones all the way to the biggest ones. And we have to hold one another accountable to the ways that we are failing at these things. Holding one another accountable with compassion, not throwing rocks at each other. And that's going to take a lot of humility, and it's going to take a lot of patience with one another as we figure this out. It's going to take choosing depth with God and depth with one another. It's going to take generosity. But I believe that these challenges before us as the church, both writ large and locally here as this body, us, is an immense, wonderful, great opportunity to show our neighbors something different for a change. Namely, that Christ is in fact, is indeed our life. And He holds each and every one of us with compassion, not condemnation. That is the good news that we believe and we follow and we want others to be attracted to, to come and to see and to hear and to experience for themselves. And may it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.